It's been six months since the attack at our nation's capital, since a group of rioters, motivated by their desire to frustrate our democratic process, decided to use violence to pursue their political goals. It was an event without precedent. For all the talk of how America's democracy is weak, crumbling, it has always succeeded at its most basic task, ensuring the peaceful transition of power. But we didn't have that this time. Our transition was marred by violence. Our democratic process failed. You would think that our country was invested in figuring out why, that we were dedicated to asking hard questions and pursuing the answers no matter where they took us. That hasn't been the case. Instead, something else has happened. We've moved on. Whatever the various reasons for this are, the fact is that the events of January 6th are fading. Instead of choosing to pursue truth, we're doing something else. We're forgetting. This is Smart Politics. I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. This week, we're talking about the memory hole. A memory hole is defined as an imaginary place where inconvenient or unpleasant information is put and quickly forgotten. But it's not just people who have these. Nations have them as well. And part of what defines a nation is not just what they choose to remember, but what they choose to forget. In fact, I'd say that it's more important because once we choose to forget, undoing that process can be very difficult. Once something goes down the memory hole, it may never come back. So today we're going to look at this process of remembering and forgetting. We're going to examine how it impacts our politics right now. Unless you've been sleeping the last few months, like a modern Rip Van Winkle, you've heard about critical race theory. And you've probably been hearing a lot of opinions about two questions. What is it? And should we teach it in our schools? I'm not going to answer either one of those. That's an entirely different discussion. What I want to do is talk about how memory plays such a big part in the discourse surrounding CRT. Because one of the talking points we often hear is that CRT would change the way we teach our history. To some people, this would be a welcome and long overdue change. They say that we have often failed to properly teach our history and that doing so has led to bad outcomes today. But others see these potential changes as scary and maybe even a bit threatening. To them, changing how we teach the past is part of an effort to rewrite history. The stakes in these discussions are high. After all, our memories play a huge role in shaping us throughout our entire lives. I still remember 9-11. I remember where I was when I heard the news. I remember the reactions of the people around me. 
And I remember watching footage of people jumping out of buildings, choosing to plunge to their death instead of burning in the flames. I remember being dumbfounded. And I remember going home, watching the news with my family, and knowing in that moment that the world had changed forever, that nothing was going to be the same. Even now, nearly 20 years later, those memories are vivid. And in ways I understand, and in other ways I probably don't, that day still shapes me. That's the power of memory. And that's what is on the line when we talk about our nation's history. The stakes are high precisely because memories matter. Of course, we all know this. Each of us have our own memories that live with us, stories we will tell throughout our entire lives. That's what makes the discourse around issues like this so brutal, so hard. Whatever side of the debate you're on, the people across from you aren't necessarily acting in bad faith. They're upset because they care, because it matters so much. Most of a nation's history will be forgotten, and there's nothing personal about that. Think about the 20th century in America. Over 100 years, we saw the right to vote expanded to women and Blacks. We fought in two world wars, and we put a man on the moon. But ask yourself how much you know about any of these events, each of which has a claim to being among the most significant events in the history of our country. Like I said, the truth is that the vast majority of history is forgotten. So deciding what to remember and what to forget is one of the most important decisions a country can make. We can only remember so much of the past and prioritizing one thing means leaving something else behind. But there is a price to pay. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about the attack on the Capitol, about how we're choosing to forget about it. That choice has consequences. By ignoring the moment where our democracy failed, we're making it much more likely that it will fail again. We're unprepared to deal with the forces that led to that day, and we're risking our future as a result. It doesn't have to be this way. Instead of seeing our past, both recent and otherwise, as an obstacle, we should see it as an opportunity. Our past mistakes grant us a chance to learn, and our past successes remind us that we're capable of great things. We should embrace our history, all of it, and we should use it not as a bludgeon or a political tool, but as a key to unlocking our nation's potential and moving us into a better future. And now I'd like to welcome my guest for this episode, Francine Dash, the boss here at Plaincast and host of her own podcast, We the Voters, which you should definitely be listening to if you aren't already. Welcome, Francine. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. So let's let's jump right in. Um, okay. What are your sort of thoughts on this idea of remembering and forgetting and how it shows up today? You know, this is a really intriguing thing 
right? Because we, we see these memory holes, as you put it, and memory gaps uh, all through history. I think my thoughts are, it's really intriguing. I think one part of it seems like it's part of the human condition. And then some of it does seem to be agenda-based, especially when those memory holes create spaces for people to revise uh, what may have taken place or revise the backstories of people who participated in a thing uh, to kind of bring up the ire of hero worship. So I, I think it's an intriguing thing that we kind of all do on some level yeah yeah i mean you know i mentioned in the show that most of history is forgotten mm -hmm. um and you know i i think that's a true thing i think you know 99 percent of history gets buried good bad everything i think most of it just sort mm -hmm. of goes down the goes down the memory hole right and what a lot of us do myself included is we look back at history and we we find the areas where our narrative can be centered mm -hmm. and then we want to center that narrative for everybody um i don't think this makes us mad i think countries do it mm -hmm. right uh something i've said to people around me recently is you know the united states want, wants everything to be about the united states so we look at the history of the middle east and we say well it's this way because of us when you look at the middle east history you go guys they they, they were managing to do just fine fighting each other before we showed up. It's right. not our. It's not not necessarily our fault that they're and, that way. And you are you referring to the recent pullout from Afghanistan and some of the work that's been done there in yeah. the last twenty five years? Yeah, I am. You know what? In 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 those spaces, I think our memory fails us greatly, particularly when we deal with other countries and their histories. Right. It's not even just a failure. It's sometimes an ignorance and and we overplay our hand in those spaces. Right. Um, and we remember our own resume incorrectly sometimes yep. in, in those places. And um, even though we can do quite a lot of good, um, sometimes we just end up stalling the inevitable. Right. because we don't truly understand or have true knowledge of of the history our history uh as it may be seen from their perspective but definitely theirs yeah and what it ends up doing and i think this is true even for people who have the, the right idea or who are very critical of what we've done what they end up doing a lot of times is they deny other countries autonomy mm -hmm. right they they say right. well they're this way because of the U.S. Well, they have autonomy. They're that way in a lot of cases because they're that way. It can't always be America has dictated the whole world. Other countries have choice. They have ability. They have their own leaders, their own factions, their own rich, complicated histories of their own. Mm -hmm. um, and we are a small part of that. Um, right. I think this is a time where a lot of nations like the United States are taking a step back and are really looking at the roles that we play in those spaces right. and um, really trying to reevaluate, you know, what our role should be in those spaces based on our understanding of the history, uh, exactly. the roles that we have played, perhaps some of the uh, damage we might have done. Um, maybe not United States directly, but in partnership or even prior to us becoming a country. You know, there's right. there's a lot to be said for understanding how people got to where they are before you can help them get to where they right. say they want to be. Right. 
And so then uh, another idea that I tackled in my in my monologue is the idea that it's not personal. I think this is the one where some people might have a problem with that statement because, mm-hmm. um, and again, I would look back and say, you know, if you are a person of color, perhaps it's tempting to look back and see all the ways in which history has forgotten people of color. And I think that's a fair thing to do. My larger point would be, I think anyone can look back and see how history has forgotten them. You know, I referenced it off air to you, you know, as people would know if they know me, my dad's a Vietnam veteran. And so for him, Vietnam is maybe the single most defining event of his life, maybe outside of like having kids, but even it might be more defining than that. I'd I'd have to ask him about that, frankly, (laughs) but his, a large chunk of his history then has been forgotten, right? The most definitive event of his life uh, has been tossed down the memory hole. Really, as soon as it happened, it was buried. And now I, I don't know of a single person who learns about Vietnam in school, not one. And for a generation, that's a definitive event. And I don't know anyone who knows anything about it. Uh, if you're not personally connected to a Vietnam vet like me, mm-hmm. I, I think your knowledge is probably next to none. And so I think everyone can look back. So what do you sort of think about this idea that it's not personal? Do you think that's true or do you think there's maybe a little more <laughs> a little more targeted for getting? Well, I think that it, it, it plays in both camps. I think that sometimes it is personal because, you know, uh, conveniently forgetting history sometimes plays into your power strategy, right? And so it can be personal and it can be personally directed toward a group of people um, as it had been done with uh, when people came to the United States to take this country in various stages and at various times. It can be done in uh, the treatment of different people and, you know, especially when we look back and a lot of people can't imagine that there were some groups of people who didn't have the right to vote um, it, it couldn't be targeted, but it could also simply be, as I stated before, uh, in addition to that targeted thing, just uh, a product of the human condition. And you brought up the Vietnam War. When the Vietnam War happened, and there's so many different factors there, you know, you have the advent of television. It was one of the first wars televised, right? So it was a horrible, horrible thing, and then on all sides. And then it was such a, a grueling thing for people involved, like my father, who also would serve four tours in Vietnam. And and people just didn't know how to process it because this is the first time we've collectively experienced such a thing. But then life is funny because something else happens that is more horrible. And then we sort of, I don't know, I don't know if forgetting's the right word or put aside what we thought was the most horrible thing ever for the new most horrible thing ever. And right. so there's some of that that goes into how we process our own history and and the contributions of people. So in one way, I do agree that it's not always personal. Uh, people are so focused on their agenda, if you will. They're not necessarily yeah. focused on you. But the other part of it is if there is a competition for resources, it can be personal. Right. So I think it can play in both camps. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's a fair point. You know, something I ought to think about the is it personal or not is and i and i think i don't know if i've said this to you directly but i know i've said it to sort of other other people i've said it to other point cast people is uh i think the history of the country is actually more sexist even than it is racist which is a really 
Like it is, it is. You go so it's bad. Well, that doesn't right? work out either way for me, though. Right. It doesn't, right? <laughs> no, yeah, unfortunately for you, you're kind of screwed into the stick no matter what. Yeah. But yeah. I think you know, it's it's bad, right? It's crazy. You go like, well, you know, fifteen percent of the country couldn't vote because they were black, mm-hmm. but like fifty-five percent of the country couldn't vote because they were women, which right. is actually even crazier. Mm-hmm. And do you actually think so? And I mentioned this in the twentieth century, both women and blacks get the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And of those two events, um, I would wager almost everyone knows more about civil rights movement than they do women's suffrage. Despite the fact that women's suffrage would have been a much larger group of people being impacted, mm-hmm. because like white women couldn't vote, <laughs> just like a huge population of white women actually couldn't vote until the twentieth century. Um, right. But how many people? If we ask people to name civil rights leaders, I'm sure we could get Martin and Malcolm and John Lewis and people might. But if you ask people to name like suffragettes, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, mm-hmm. you may get like one. Right. Maybe. You may you may get one. And, and some people will name people who weren't actually suffragettes. But right. I think that the suffragette movement is clouded by a lot of different issues since we brought that up. Yeah. One, because it was not inclusive. It mainly right. dealt with uh, white women of means. And the right to vote is a tricky one because, you know, after slavery had ended, you know, you see an onslaught of black, primarily men elected to office. Well, how did they get there? Because black men were voting. Right. Right. But black women were not voting. Right. So what that did is that put white women and black women now in the same category of yep. non-voters. Yep. Um, and, and it's an interesting thing because that was not necessarily realized as an asset by a lot of suffragettes and that movement who really wanted to keep the movement more white and separate because they didn't want to cloud it with uh, for some people didn't want to cloud it with the other issues that came along with right. inviting some black women into that space. But it's an interesting, uh, an interesting take to, to see that history. I, I agree that history, American history is uh, very sexist. And, and to some people it might be seen as more sexist, right. uh, but anything that uh, takes away power from people has done you know, great harm historically yeah. in our country. So, um, yeah, like I said before, jokingly, that I wouldn't have won either in either camp. Uh, right. <laughs> and the reality is that I truly believe that none of us wins, um, whether you're a woman or not, whether you're black or not, if rights are denied from anyone. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, my existence was like my very existence in marriage was like illegal in a lot of places till like the 70s of like <laughs> you know the loving decision so i always laugh right. like i was actually illegal in some yeah. places yeah until your, like the, the your, late 20th century <laughs> your parents are felons on the run right felons on the run. so you know this is all sort of stuff that gets forgotten and i just think right. it's an interesting thing to talk about right um but with that that's going to be the final word on the topic i think we've about hit our time um, so I'm going well, I'm 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 to let you have the final word, though. If you have anything else you want to add to it? No, I just want to say I enjoyed this discussion. I'd encourage people to continue to have this discussion in their circles. And thank you again for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Smart Politics, Francine. As always, guys, you can you can find us here on Pointcast. Uh, if you have a chance, go listen to her podcast. Again, that's We Need the Voters. Um, and just sort of st- stay tuned. We always have some exciting stuff. 
we'll have uh, uh yeah we have some exciting stuff coming up and just you know stay tuned stay listening we appreciate you guys always joining us <laughs>